understanding that what awaited him was an eternal home, that's what he that's what he lived for. That's what his perspective was day by day. As he did what he did, is that he longed for what? Jesus. He longed to be with Christ because he knew then that he would get rid of this body. Get a new body. Remember I shared this with you last week because what's one thing that we always will struggle with in this life? Sin. Don't we hate it? You know what the sins are that you struggle with. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be aware of the sins that you struggle with. The Holy Spirit will continually point them out and bring conviction in your life because of them. And because of that, he, Paul struggled too. I mean, you understand, when we talk about an apostle, we're, we're talking about a human being. We're not talking about Mr. Perfection here. The apostles, just like you and I, he longs to get rid of this body. To get the eternal body. Now, there's another perspective also from this. Not just in the sense of being the sin issue being removed. And getting a new body and no longer existing in that constant battle. Paul talks about that constant battle in Romans chapter 7 where he talks about the good that I want to do, I don't do. That which I don't want to do, I do. And that constant battle between the flesh and the spirit within him. But there's another aspect there. Remember, we just talked about, just a couple of weeks ago, Paul was talking about the severe conditions that he was undergoing, like persecution, affliction, and so forth. And there's that aspect of longing to be with Jesus because even that will be over. Even that will be over. So I want you to think about that. Think about your week this week. You probably had some things happen this week that you wish had not had happened. Not because of something you've done, but just the general nature of life, right? How many of you have experienced a little bit of pain this week? All of us, right? You should, yeah? Whether it's body pain, get it, trying to get up in the morning, you know? And I, I didn't want to get out of bed. My body didn't want to get out of bed this morning. I was aching all over. You know, just hurting from all that food I ate last night. No, I'm just kidding. But you know what? You, 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 your body aches. You get older. And it just doesn't function the same. You just can't spring out of bed like you used to anymore. You know, unless you've got an ejector seat in the bed that just throws you out. You know? But here's, here's my point. So there's that longing for... Pain to be away. Remember we, when we talked about that in Roman, Revelation, excuse me, about that there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, no more sickness. So Paul's got that eternal perspective where he, he longed, he longed to, uh, for his eternal home. So then he talks about the timing. Paul stated that the eternal state would be instant upon death. Instant upon death. He would, he would enter into that eternal state immediately upon death. There's no pause in there. There's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. Now, the current condition, he goes on and talks about his current situation. And he says this. Paul stated that they are burdened for their future state 
in heaven. He's groaning for that future state in heaven. He's longing for it. He's longing for it. good question for us to ask is this. Are you longing for it? Are you longing for it? Chances are, we include myself in this. We have to say that we're not. Chances are, we are comfortable where we're at. So we really can't relate to the Apostle Paul here, can we? Because what he longs for is to be with God. Now, let me just fill you in a little bit. Uh, before we say, oh, boy, that Paul, he's a super spiritual guy. I can't be like that. I don't know what, you know, before you beat yourself up, let me remind you that later on in this letter, we're going to see that Paul talks about that he got a glimpse of heaven. And he saw heaven. So maybe that would help him in his motivation for wanting to be there. I've heard Keith Green say this. <clears throat> Keith Green, in an album of his, he, he makes mention that God took six days to create this world. And he's been creating our heavenly home for 2,000 years. He said if he took six days to create this place, and he's taken 2,000 years to create the place that we're going to, man, this is a garbage can we're living in compared to where we're going to go. Where would you rather be? Yeah, if you had the perspective of knowing what heaven was going to be like, like the Apostle Paul did. Remember, he saw things, and we'll see this when we get to chapter chapter 12. He saw things that he said were not lawful for him to speak about. He saw some wonderful things there. And so, just to help you to understand why he's longing to be there, God gave him a view of what was coming. God gave him a view of what was coming. And he said, now, George, how, what do we do with that? Because I want to have that eternal perspective. I want to be like Paul where I'm living for him. Do I need to ask God to give me a vision of heaven? Well, not in the sense like Paul that you had a, a, a spectacular experience like that. But I think what we maybe do need to pray for is that God would give us a better understanding of what's coming. And with a better understanding of what's coming, help ask us to help us loosen our grip on this world. So he's groaning. And so he has a promise that he's holding on to. And this is a promise that we can hold on to. He longed for the promise when death is swallowed up in eternity. Remember, I talked to you that not one of us here has not been touched by death. You have not been touched by death, and I'll be honest with you, you will continue to be touched by death in some form, and then ultimately, you yourself, unless Jesus comes back, will experience death. You'll experience it. And, and it, we hate it, don't we? We hate it. You know, I, I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm... I'm 40 years old now. My dad's been dead 20 years. And every time I go to his grave, whenever we go to Myrtle Beach, we stop by the National Cemetery in Florence, South Carolina. And uh, that's just 
I just know we're going to stop by there. If we're heading to Myrtle Beach, we go by the, by his, by the National Cemetery there. And every time I go to the grave, I cry. And it's been 20 years. You know, you never stop grieving. Let me just make a point there. Let me make a side note here. People who go through grief, don't tell them to get over it. Don't tell them to snap out of it. Because the fact is, is you never stop grieving. And some people respond to grief differently. And some people have to go through the grief process differently. And even to this day. You know, and I hate death. Do you hate it? You need to. See, that's why we, we try to do everything, you know, so, you know, our funeral homes are so professional and every, and we'll make statements, oh, don't they look good? No, they don't. They're dead. That's just reality, isn't it? That's reality. And so then, you know, then it's done. But it isn't done. The pain, the loss is still there. And so Paul, he, he recognizes the issue of death, and he longed for the promise when what? Was swallowed up. Death was swallowed up. And we already know when that's going to take place. The day when Jesus comes back, death and hell are what? Cast into the lake of fire. Our enemy will be vanquished. Our enemy will be vanquished. Hey, just for, let me just give you a theological note here. Do you know who it was that brought death into this world? Do you know who it was that brought death into this world? Adam and Eve, you and I. It wasn't God. That wasn't his original plan. We're the ones who brought it. Now you think about that. Isn't that, that gives you just another understanding of salvation. Gives you because there was nothing. Does anybody here? I mean, we've been mankind's been searching for a way to overcome death forever. They have will not ever overcome it. I mean, even like Ted Williams, his head sitting somewhere down in Arizona, frozen. He's anticipating that we're going to get so so that somebody can bring him back. Sorry, Ted, that ain't going to happen. And you know, here's the point I want you to see: is we're the ones. Mankind, through Adam and Eve, our representatives, who brought death into this world. And what's wonderful about salvation is, is that here we are. We can't do anything about death, but God does it for us. God does it for us. So let's go on. So here he talks about the guarantee. The, the guarantee of understanding what awaits us. And so in verse 5, he talks about that God is the one who planned and prepared us to reach the eternal state. See, this was God's plan for you and I, is that we would go on and live with Him forever in the eternal state. And, and you know what? Drop what Hollywood has in mind about the eternal state. Forget halos. That came from Renaissance art. You look at Renaissance art, and they show the picture of Mary or the baby or whatever. They, the, the, the halo around them was to represent their holiness. That was in art. So we've kind of translated it down the road to a little white gold ring above an angel's head. Also drop what Hollywood, when you die and go to be with the Lord, you're not going to become an angel. Does everybody understand? So you're not going to have wings. 
You know, you're going to be an eternal being. And you're not going to sit around playing on a harp. On a cloud. And that's why people think, you know, and you hear people say the stupidest things like, well, can't wait to get to hell where there's going to be a great party down there. Who wants to sit around playing on a harp? My friends, you don't understand. You don't understand. It's that's So remove the pop culture view of heaven out of your mind. Remove it out of your mind. And recognize that God has pre- prepared a place for you. And let me just call it like it is. Paradise. Paradise. He's prepared paradise for you. Isn't that what he said to the thief on the cross? Yes. Wow. Isn't that an awesome thought? Awesome thought. Let's let's go on then. So then he talks about the guarantee. And so God gave us the Holy Spirit as our guarantee for the future. See, the moment you got saved, let me just stop this for a moment because there are some different denominations who teach different things. And some will say, well, you know, you get saved and then then a little bit later on you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How many of you have heard that kind of teaching, that it's some subsequent event to salvation? They're wrong. Why they're wrong is passages just like this. See, if you're saved, you have, to have to, you have to have a guarantee of your salvation. You understand? Because your salvation isn't based on you. Because it isn't based on you, you've got to have some kind of a guarantee. And so he gave us a guarantee. He gave us the guarantee of the Holy Spirit who enters into your life the moment, the second, the nanosecond, whatever in time, that you trusted in Jesus Christ and became a believer in God. The Holy Spirit entered into your life. And the Holy Spirit serves as our guarantee of salvation. In fact, listen to what Ephesians chapter 1, 13-14 says. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So here he's talking about the whole process of salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the moment you trusted, here's what Paul said, here's again, it's not some subsequent event. When you express faith in Jesus Christ in response to the gospel, you were sealed. Now, the picture of a seal here is like, you know, remember in legal documents they used to have like a seal on, on, you know, if you have a birth certificate, you know, if you've got a state of Pennsylvania birth certificate, it's got a raised seal on it, supposedly. It's got a raised seal on it. That, that's where you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And now here's how he describes him. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? So he's our guarantee until the redemption of the possession. What does he mean by that? Until he comes to get his possession. Who's his possession? You and I. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee. So this stuff about a subsequent, you know, baptism and all of this stuff, that, then, okay, what, what, what state am I in between that? What state am I in between that? If I get saved and later on I've got to receive the Holy Spirit later on, What happens to me in between? I don't have any guarantee of my salvation, do I? 
See, you've got to think these things through according to what the Bible says. See, you were sealed, and at that moment you were sealed, He was your guarantee. And that's what Paul is saying here in, 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 in 2 Corinthians, is that God gave us the Holy Spirit as our guarantee for the future. He's our guarantee for the future. Now we get to where we haven't looked at yet, and that's chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And we're going to talk about his confidence and his commitment now. So notice with me verse 6. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So here's what he's saying. The eternal perspective gave Paul confidence in this temporary existence. See, having the eternal perspective gave him confidence as he lived his life in this temporary existence. Now, let me put it all in the context of what we've been talking about. In the context of this eternal perspective that we're looking at here, Paul's been talking about his ministry. Remember, the whole overlying issue is his ministry. So, what Paul is saying here is this. This eternal perspective of what awaits him and his longing for what awaits him and the guarantee of what awaits him gives him now confidence to live his life now, especially with what God wants him to do right now. Because he's not going to worry about what life has to throw at him. He's going to keep plugging on because he knows that what awaits him is something far far better. Something far better. So he's going to do what he's got to do. So he's going to endure the hardships that he's endured. He's going to endure the persecution. He's going to endure the afflictions. He's going to endure the slander. He's going to endure all of those problems because he's got it all in perspective. He's looking forward to what's coming. So he's going to do what God's got for him to do right now. Isn't that an awesome thought? Let me ask you a question. Are you motivated that way? If we were brutally honest, and myself included, we would have to say no. Because the eternal perspective doesn't give me or you confidence for today to do what God wants us to do today. Because we don't think in terms of that. We don't think in terms of that. But that's what Paul's talking about here, is that it gives him confidence to move forward. To move forward. It gives him confidence to move forward. So, let's let's go on then. So, he's got confidence in this temporary existence. Let me, okay, let, let me just, here, let me give you a question. Why do you think many Christians in the Western world live as though they prefer to be at home in the body, enjoying their Christian life to the maximum now? You know what I'm asking? Why do you think many Christians in the Western world live as though they prefer to be at home in the body, this body, enjoying their Christian life to the maximum now? Why do you think we prefer to live now? Okay, Genesis, she doesn't think we truly understand what's in heaven for us. Okay, that's good. Anyone else? Why do you think we're living for now? Okay, because of our affluent society is what Ramona said. 
What were you saying, Jerry? Our family bonds. Okay, that could be an aspect there. Why, why do you think we're so focused on now and, and living now? We're, we're, we're just happy with now. Okay, all right. We, we can see now. We, 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 we understand now. We don't understand later is what you're saying. Okay, all right. Everybody agree with what Ken's saying? Okay. What else? Oh, okay. We're not being persecuted, so what we have now is good. Now, okay, I want you to think for a moment. Remove yourself from America for a moment. What if you were an Iraqi Christian living in Baghdad? Where would your perspective be? You want to go home. Which home are you talking about? Yeah, okay. All right, let's, let's remove ourselves from Iraq. Let's say you are a Christian who lives somewhere in North Africa, secretly, because if word got out that you were a Christian, you'd be dead. Where would your perspective be? Okay, let's, let's take it one step further. Let's say you are living in China, or you're living in Indonesia, and you, you basically are needing to worship underground. For fear of the authorities. Where would your perspective be? Evan? How about Rwanda? Angola? Congo? Do you see my point? Now let's ask the question. Why is it that... Because somebody's already made the point here. Let's make the point again. Why is it that we are more at home here now? Yeah, we have it too good. Can I be honest with you? Even a hundred years ago, our ancestors in this country had an eternal perspective. Christian, because life was not too good even 60 years ago. But since World War II, and I showed it, since World War II, I, I looked at a CIA fact sheet this week, where it goes through and gives descriptions of every country. And it was interesting what the CIA said about our own country, and about how after World War II, everything just kind of skyrocketed. To where we're the most affluent, most powerful nation in the world. There's no one else like us, period. And that's why everybody wants to come here. Everybody else wants to come here because we have that affluence. Because even our poor are richer than, you know. Here, in fact, here's another statistic I heard this week. 2% 2% of the world's population have $500,000 or more in assets. The other 98% don't. Only 2% of our world's population have $500,000 or more in assets. That's property, stocks, pension plans, whatever. Half a million dollars. There's only 2% of our world, they call it the half a million dollar club. Only 2% of our world's population, guess where that 2% lives? In the West. Now, it also made this interesting point. We also have the poorest of the poor as far as the world's concerned. And they based that on assets. And what they said was that there are more poor in the United States because more people are so far in debt, they're in the negative figure. So according to that survey, you know, if the if the if 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 the bank called and said today we want it now, they would be out and you know they wouldn't have anything. Which 
can I be honest with you? If you read the fine print, they do have the right to do that. So don't pray for any crises in our country, because they might just do that. So the point is, what I want you to see is, is that the perspective is, is that we we just want to hold on to what we got here. But that's not what Paul had, and that's really not what the perspective of a lot of other Christians. So because of that confidence, now Paul walks by faith. Look at verse seven. Look at what he says in verse seven. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul lived by faith in his salvation rather than by his current circumstances. His faith was on what is to come. His faith is on what what Jesus has done in his life right now. Not based upon whether or not it's raining outside or not raining. Not based upon how big his bank account is or how big his debt load is. It's all based upon the eternal. He lived by faith rather than by sight. How do we tend to live? Yeah, by sight, don't we? And let's just talk about that for a moment. Do we, when we live by sight, do we have a complete picture? No, we don't. Isn't that something? We'll, we'll operate by sight based upon what we see, but the fact is the matter, we don't really see everything, do we? Well, we, or we'll see what we want to see. But, see, and that's the problem with living by sight, because you can't have all understanding of everything. The only person who can have that is God. Are you God? No. But the point I want you to see is, is that Paul said, because of the fact that he has confidence in the eternal, he's going to live by faith. Faith in who? God. And what God's going to do and what God has done. Rather than by the circumstances around you. He's going to hold fast in faith. Hold fast in faith. So then notice verse 8. Here's his desire. For we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So here's what his desire was. Paul expressed that he would rather be with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. Is that your desire? You know, I, I, I wrestle with this sometimes because I love, I love Lori and I love my kids. But am I willing to give them up for Jesus? Am I willing to give them up to Jesus? And then I remember what Jesus said. If you seek your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll gain it. And so the, the perspective is, Am I going to be like Paul? Am I going to be have that same desire as Paul where I'm longing to be with him because I know that's far better? And when you do that, you're putting your trust in him. You're putting your family in his. You're entrusting in, in Christ. Now, that doesn't say you go do foolish things, but you, you understand what I'm saying. It's, it's a whole issue of who are you putting, who, who's in control, basically. Are you going to be in control or are you going to put God in control? For Paul, it was putting God in control. He longed to be with Jesus. And so he trusted whatever Jesus wanted to happen in his life. Even to the place that he would, years later after writing this, would be taken outside of Rome and have his head removed from his body. But you know what? When you look at what he's saying here to these Corinthians, even with being taken outside of Rome, putting his head on a chopping block, 
He knew, but in a few moments, the seconds, he was going to be with And God did God. With God. The amazing thing is, how many of you have Fox's Book of Martyrs in your house? Some of you maybe do. It's in our library if you want to borrow it. And in it are the testimonies, especially the early chapters, of the martyrs. And you will read of the martyrs and how they, when they were taken to the Colosseums or when they were taken before torturers and stuff, the testimonies of how they went willing. And how they went ready. Because they had the eternal perspective. This tent. It's just a tent. It's only temporary. So then notice now his commitment. That's where we're going to finish up here, verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So here's Paul's aim. In the meantime now, as he's longing to be with Jesus, in the meantime between now and the time that he will go to be with Jesus, here's his attitude. His attitude is that in the meantime, Paul lives his life in a way that is pleasing to God. He's going to make it his aim, he says, whether absent from the body or present in the Lord, to be well-pleasing to God. That's his aim. That's his motivation. That he's going to live his life in such a way, whether alive or with Jesus, he's going to live his life in such a way that it's going to be pleasing to God. Is that our aim? Maybe some days. Maybe not. And see, again, I'm not talking at you, I'm talking together. Myself included. Boy, there's a different perspective here, isn't it? That because of salvation, I'm going to, until he comes for me, I'm going to what? Live my life in a way that's pleasing to him. But you say, well, wait a minute, how, how do I know how to live my life? Read your word. Read the word. It tells you a lot in word about how to live your life pleasing to him. It tells you. And then he kind of tells you why you need to live your life pleasing to him. Verse, next thing he says is this. Paul reminds the reader that all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know what, can I be honest with you? This is one that American Christians need to wake up to. American Baptist Christians need to wake up to. The fact is, is yes, you are saved if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. But can I be honest with you? That maybe has taken away the judgment of hell. But it will not take away the judgment. You and I According to the Bible, throughout the scriptures, must give an account for our lives. He even gets the specific in Romans where he says that every idle word, every little word, must be 
accounted for. Boy, talk about watching what I'm saying now. Or I've got to, I mean, how many of you can remember what you said a year ago? I mean, I'm not talking about profound statements. Maybe you can remember a profound family moment where you made a statement. And when you and your spouse are arguing, you can remember what you said. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just idle, everyday conversation, just kibitzing. Do you remember what you said a year ago? Do you see my point? You don't remember that, but see, one day you've got to stand before God and give an account for that. Great parallel passage here. Same group of people that he's talking to, but it's a different letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about that we lay up for ourselves wood, hay, stubble, precious stone, silver, and that one day it all has to be passed through the fire. And then it makes this it makes a sad point that some will have everything burned up except that they're saved. They don't have anything. See, what motivates Paul to live his life is a recognition that one day he's got to stand before God and give an account for himself. You know what? Do you think we would change our life if we understood that one day I've got to answer to Jesus for the way that I act and talk? I already know that as a, as a pastor and a teacher, I've got to stand before him and undergo a little bit more of a judgment than you simply because I teach. The Bible makes that very clear in a lot of different places. I haven't given an account for my teaching. For my teaching. So then here's what he says. Another motivation. All will be rewarded based on their actions in this temporary existence. Every single one of you is going to receive a reward or a lack of a reward for how you live your life now. Now, here's the problem. We don't hear that preached, do we? Nobody reminds us about that when we get saved. But that's reality. And Paul's telling his readers and he's telling you and I that we need to have that same attitude. Okay, let's pray.